This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's affordable housing debate has reached a new level. Plus, high food prices, capping international students, the feds versus Ontario, bye-bye links, and grab your spoon. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This is the hottest button topic right now in the hammer. Last week, the General Issues Committee rejected a proposal to sell off the only two municipal parking lots in downtown Stony Creek with the plan to create 67 new affordable housing units. There'd be two low-rise buildings with a bunch of these housing units. And the proposal lost on a tie vote, 8-8. So it's going to come down to a final decision this coming Wednesday at Hamilton City Council. Mayor Andrew Horvath, at the time last week, not too happy with how the vote went down. When it comes to the, you know, the, the final discussion about where our priorities lie, how can our priority not lie with providing housing for people? So the question is, is the mayor going to use her strong mayor powers to push this through? John Best is the publisher with the Bay Observer and writes about this in the Bay Observer and joins us now on GMH on 900 CHML. John, welcome to the show. How are you? Good to be with you, Rick. I'm fine. This is, as I mentioned, a hot-button topic in the city. Do you get the sense that Mayor Horvath is going to use her strong mayor powers? And if so, how does that work? Well, I'm not sure. I've never been fully clear on just where the strong mayor powers initially. uh, We were told it was uh, all about housing. So I guess if that's the definition of whether it's appropriate to use those powers, uh, this would certainly be one. But, you know, it's uh, it's one of these deals where when, you know, when emotions and facts collide, uh, emotions always win. And this is uh, this is being portrayed as uh, cars versus people. And, you know, it's really not that it's a it's a local councillor trying to deal with some very significant pushback in his ward. He's got a petition with thirteen hundred signatures. His, his local chamber of commerce is opposed to this project, as is the BIA. So, you know, for for other councillors and the mayor to suggest that uh, that he should just ignore those kind that kind of pushback when almost every one of them has faced something similar in their own ward and and had to deal with it. Uh, you know, the, to me, there's a there's an element of condescension when the mayor. Uh, talks about I, I need somebody to change their vote. Uh, th- that suggests that the people that voted the way they did didn't know what they were doing. And uh, you know, to me, if she wants to use it, then use it. But uh, then she'll have to wear it. And that would also set a precedence too. I mean, if this happens in another area of the city, and the same kind of situation applies, it it should be automatic. Like use it once on a, an, in in Stony Creek, you would have to use it again in Ancaster or Dundas or whatever the case is. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Vrancor Developments uh, came up with a proposal uh, uh, late last year where they were going to provide 131 deeply affordable apartment units as part of a a two-tower development in Ward 3. And the local councillor, and he was going to subsidize the rent to keep it at $1,130 a month. And uh, the local councillor lobbied against it. She wrote a letter to uh, planning staff saying, uh, we don't want this. So, 
you know, and, and I can think of, you know, when the 45 story tower on the waterfront was was being proposed that, uh, you know, Councillor Kretsch, uh, Danko, uh, these are people that are now uh, very much pushing uh, for the Stony Creek building to go ahead. They oppose those developments. So, you know, to, to suggest that this councillor uh, needs to give his head a shake, I, I think, you know, there's a little bit of hypocrisy here. Absolutely. We had Councillor Matt Francis on the show on Friday, and he said, listen, it's it's more than just housing versus parking. There are a lot of local businesses who want these lots to remain because they benefit from the people who go to those lots and shop in their stores and go to the medical clinic and, you know, go to the Royal Canadian Legion, which is there. I get it. Optically, though, I mean, l- you look at the Tiny Homes Project in North Hamilton. I mean, the the nimbyism is real in this city as well. It is. And, you know, we, we do have a serious uh, affordable housing uh, problem. I, I guess in, in this instance, I would ask, is that the only piece of city-owned property in the entire former town of Stony Creek? Is there is there nowhere else uh, where, where this could take place? And I did see some social media commentary on the weekend that suggested there were other uh, other other places that are available. And and just broadening it out a little bit, Rick, I, I think one of the problems we have is we still have these silos of uh, jurisdiction that are that are hampering affordable housing. I'm thinking of uh, the abandoned schools, the process you have to go through to get that property released for public good is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, the, the province says we have a, a housing crisis, we need to build all these units, and, and we do. But uh, it is very difficult uh, for a publicly owned uh, school property to be turned over to the city uh, for uh, for the use of uh, affordable housing or any other kind of housing. So I think we've got to break down some of these jurisdictional uh, blockages as well. You're 100% right. And I can only imagine how many affordable homes or just homes in general would be built on the grounds of the former Sir John A. McDonald School. But that'll be a debate for another day. John, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Good to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk a little bit about food prices. It's one of our favorites. And not so favorite topics on the show because it impacts everyone. And I was at the grocery store over the weekend and there was a couple of couples in their 60s and they were just, they had a hate on for the rise in food prices. Can't believe how high food prices have gone, which is what they were saying. And I'm nodding my head like, yep, absolutely. You'll recall the 2024 food price report predicted a 25 to 4.5% food price spike in this country. It's about $700 more for the average family of four. Last year, those food prices went up 5 to 7%. The year before, about 10 11%. And all the while, grocery stores are being painted as the villain in this food affordability crisis. Michael Von Massow is the OAC Chair in Food System Leadership and Associate Professor in the Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at uh, University of Guelph and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Rick. How are you? I'm good. There's a real hate on for grocery stores these days. Yeah, there is. Yeah, it, it, I think uh, it's they're an easy target. I think some of it is self-inflicted and some of it is, you know, that's where we're spending money. 
that's where we're feeling the impact of food price inflation. Many of us don't understand what's happening further back in the supply chain. Uh, we're seeing politicians point the finger at grocery stores in an effort, frankly, to divert attention from themselves. And I think the truth is that some of the big stores have not done themselves any favors in terms of how they have responded to it, you know. And so from a PR perspective, I think they've done a poor job and and so not done a good job of, of, of helping people understand why food prices have gone up. You bring up a, a, a treasure trove of amazing points. I want to start with the self-inflicted comment. How so? Well, I think, you know, to, to a degree, uh, we've seen, uh, we've, we, I mean, recently Loblaws said, well, we're, we're going to stop doing the 50% off for things that are uh, the eat today. You know, really, that's not going to make a big difference in terms of their profits. It just looks like uh, they're, they're, they're being greedy. The truth is it might help reduce food waste, but it, it they're just not thinking through, I think, some of the things that, uh, that, that affect how people perceive them. We've seen, we've seen Loblaws do several of these things. You know, they announced a few years ago, uh, a freeze on some of their no-name prices over the holidays. And then others came out and said, well, that happens all the time. I think just the way they've interacted with the public uh, has often felt disingenuous uh, and so made it easy to continue to hate them. You also reference supply chain issues. And is this where the supplier's role comes into effect? Well, I think we, we need to not just think about their suppliers. We need to think all the way back up the supply chain. And and if you look, as you said, the, the food price increases were highest a couple of years ago when uh, when the war in Ukraine started, when we saw extreme weather events uh, in many of our sources of winter produce. Uh, and so we saw these things happening, which frankly affect supply. And, and if we remember from, from first year economics, if supply goes down, prices go up. So many of these things were unrelated to anything happening in Canada, but were related to these sort of broader conditions across the uh, across the world and and so while it's uh, while while it's easy what well, <clears throat> historically we've seen individual things go up and what we had in the last couple of years is this perfect storm of a whole bunch of things happening all at the same time uh, which increased all prices it's important to remember that food price inflation is a measure of sort of the average price increases, but we know some things went up much more. We know some things didn't go up as much at all. And and those individual price changes were, were the result of a whole bunch of things, as I said. Another minute with uh, Michael Von Massow, a professor at the University of Guelph. We're talking about rising food prices. And again, this year, a two and a half to four and a half percent prediction for prices to go up. You mentioned the public relations missteps. And I think um, public enemy number one, probably Galen Weston at this point. Here's a multimillionaire, billionaire, who's the face of his empire. On commercials, all the while, people are complaining about food prices. There was, uh, there, there's so much wrong with this. Well, I think I think you're right. Uh, you know, it, prior to food price inflation, Loblaws tried to sort of make us like Galen, and and he and he talked about all of the products that they brought, and 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 sort of you know the soft sweater uh, sort of picture on these commercials. But then when things when things 
uh, we're, we're not seeing them on TV as much anymore. I think they've at least figured that out. Uh, but, but the, but the truth is that I think, as we said earlier, uh, part of their response has felt disingenuous. Part of their response, uh, has, has been silence and, and really they haven't, it, it, they haven't managed the, the, the communications very well at all. I would agree with you on that one for sure. Michael, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning and have an awesome day. Thanks, Rick. Same to you. Thank you very much. That is Michael Van Michael Vaughn Massau, the OAC Chair in Food System Leadership and Associate Professor at the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You will recall that the federal government announced a, uh, an immediate two-year cap on international student permit applications, and it's going to stop giving work permits to some students after graduation. And for this year, the government has projected that the cap is going to result in about 360,000 approved study permits. That's down 35% from last year. And this cap will not only impact post-secondary institutions, and I know there's a news conference later on today with... Um, the minister in charge of that file to announce some, what the premier is calling good news. Ontario's economy and the tourism sector is going to take a hit. Dr. Jessica Ng is the director of policy and government affairs with the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Ng, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So what kind of impact are we foreseeing here for Ontario's tourism sector? So we are foreseeing, um, at this point, we are foreseeing some impact here. So important to remember that Ontario accounts for 70% of Canada's international higher education enrollment. And within the tourism industry, our post-secondary programs have very high international student enrollment. So international enrollment has been outpacing domestic enrollment for many years. These programs are critical pathways to filling in-demand jobs in our industry. And so our post-secondary partners anticipate the cap to affect enrollment. There's going to be fewer students learning the trade, fewer people graduating to culinary events and accommodation. Um, And so we are anticipating a serious impact to um, our service industry. And this is already as the hospitality industry is saying, wow, we need more people. Absolutely. So our businesses are still having challenges with recruitment and retention, um, similar to elsewhere in the economy as well, where cost of living is simply outpacing um, wages everywhere. When you've got rent that's 2000 or more in the GTA, it's pricing people out of good, rewarding jobs that don't pay six figures. And so this is just another challenge on top of the existing labor shortages that we have. Has the association contacted the government to share its thoughts? Yes. So we have um, sent out a press release um, available to all uh, government partners. We are in the midst of uh, contacting and um, being in touch with our federal partners, our um, our uh, provincial partners as well, um, really illustrating that this is a serious issue that is going to have lasting impacts uh, for the capacity of our sector to recover, to meet visitor demand and to grow. So what's the message for the government to to walk back some of these cap levels to uh, do away do away with it altogether what is your message 
So at this point, you know, we do need to work with our post-secondary partners with government to see what can be done at this point about the cap, um, whether it's about walking it back, whether it is about um, phasing it in. You know, this is something that's going to require collaboration on all sides. Um, but the broader issue here is we also need immigration reform. Um, for folks that are coming into our industry from the international side, we need, we need to make it easier for international students to access the jobs they've trained for and gain permanent residency. There are a number of jobs in tourism that don't qualify for permanent residency. Things like flight attendants, hotel front desk clerks, servers, tour guides. These are important stepping stones where folks are training for these jobs and they can't actually get to them. We need to strengthen our domestic labor pool as well. We need high school students and job seekers to rethink what's possible in a tourism career. And we need real housing solutions, not reactionary policies. We need an accelerated plan to address the housing crisis to ensure that the supply of attainable housing keeps up with the demand of our population. And that last point is really the crux of the matter. I mean, the federal government came to this decision based on the housing crunch. Like if we're going to invite all these international students here, where are they going to stay? Exactly. And so, you know, what we're seeing right now is um, solutions on the ground for housing, but the gap is for um, that middle income uh, bracket. We need more attainable housing that people can actually afford. What are the Tourism Association members saying? So our members are saying that they're expecting recruitment and retention to be more expensive after this cap. So this is the case for almost half of the employers that we surveyed. They forecast um, not being able to hire for necessary positions in the future. They forecast understaffing and potentially having to scale back on services in the future. And again, this is a two-year cap. So this is two years of this. How... How, if nothing changes, how damaging is this going to be for the tourism and hospitality industry? So it's hard to predict at this point, but um, we are we are forecasting some significant impacts here. This is a disruption to um, our future talent pool, our current talent pool, um, especially given that our workforce has relied on international talent for so many years and our domestic pool has been declining uh, for so many years as we lose students and job seekers to other economic sectors. And so it's a disruption right now to the talent pool and um, we're forecasting, you know, impacts to just uh, capacity for tourism to, to meet visitor demand, to grow, to thrive, and to really be a driver for other sectors in the economy. Dr. Ring, thanks for sharing your insight with our listeners this morning. Appreciate the time and enjoy the day. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it appears the federal and Ontario governments are at odds again. Minister Gibo, the federal environmental minister, uh, I couldn't believe what he said the other day. Uh, they're no longer going to fund building roads and highways. And I'm thinking, what are we doing? Are we are we going to be riding on horseback or bicycles? That is Premier Doug Ford on sister station 640 Toronto on Friday, bashing Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo's comments about funding road infrastructure, saying he was gobsmacked. And an independent MP and former Liberal candidate says he's open to joining the Conservatives. Oh. Things are getting spicy. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Turnbull, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm great. The uh, Ontario versus federal government. Now, the uh, for, for, for some background for our listeners, the Ford government wants to build Highway 413, and this is an effort to 
ease congestion for those in Halton and Peel and York regions, but it's under a federally mandated uh, environmental review. And with the population in that part of the world expected to balloon in the next couple of decades, and, and most people traveling in cars, I would think that most voters are going to back this highway plan, which makes me think that, is this another topic that conservative leader Pierre Polyev is going to say, you know what, let me capitalize this and vote rich Ontario? Um, I would suspect so. <laughs> like, I think there was a lot of confusion when uh, Minister Gibo said that the federal government wasn't going to be building roads anymore and the federal government isn't in the business of building roads, whatever it was that he said. I mean, clearly we are headed toward a different kind of climate policy and we, we're already in a different kind of climate policy and things, you know, things are going to change. But that just kind of seemed to be out of left field and it wasn't clear what he really meant. And I think he's, you know, he's created confusion and he's always also created a lot of political response by way of, hold on, what do you mean? And don't you guys also want us to have zero emissions cars? So clearly you want roads for us to drive those on. And so I don't think Ford's going to be afraid of um, a fight with Stephen Gibault. I think he's fine with that. And I think Pierre Polyev too will will weigh in on, listen, like these guys are trying to move too too fast. This guy's a zealot and... And we need to to be careful. It seems that whenever Canada has had a liberal prime minister, Ontario's had a conservative premier and, and vice versa. With Mr. Trudeau lagging behind in the polls, does that spell bad news in a couple of years time for Doug Ford? Not necessarily. Um, and I mean, that type of thing tends to happen. Voters tend to kind of split the vote a little bit and they've got one option in Ontario and one option in, in Ottawa and other provinces can follow along those lines too. But I think it's kind of like the party loyalty thing is kind of shifting um, par- parties at the federal level and the provincial level, even if they wear the same banner and call themselves by the same names, don't always, you know, think the same or act the same or value the same things. I don't think Pierre Polyev and Doug Ford get along great. And so it's not necessarily the case that those two would back down from a fight against one another either. They might, I think they might both be fine with that. <laughs> and so, um I, I'm not sure that it means really anything for Doug Ford. For, like, it doesn't spell bad fortunes for him if, if Justin Trudeau loses, not at all. Uh, let's switch gears because I'm going to talk about Kevin Wong. This was interesting. Days before the 2021 federal election, he was dropped as a candidate uh, in a Toronto riding by the Liberals after he failed to disclose uh, a, a sexual assault charge against him in 2019, which was later withdrawn that same year. But he still won the riding as an independent and now he's saying that he doesn't think Canada's going in the right direction and he would be open to joining Team Polyev. What do the Conservatives do? Well, I think, the, now, I, I don't know. And maybe, maybe Polyev likes this idea. My guess is that the Conservatives are going to want to hold on to their own nomination process. And Polyev is already um, in, under fire for, well, not really him, but his office is under fire for having clearly wanted a candidate um, in a couple of writings and not, you know, you know, allegedly not going through the full nomination process and, and rushing people in, in certain writings and, and constituency offices don't like that. And so the thing about if Wong comes over to the conservatives is that clearly he's going to want the nomination uh, in, in the next election, whenever it comes. And I'm thinking, you know, that they've got other people in mind, <laughs> you know, the conservatives in that writing will have other people in mind, not just the guy who got kicked into the liberals the last time. So I'm not sure Polyev is going to jump at this. And even if he did, even if he said, fine, come and sit with the conservatives, he'd still, I think, have a full on nomination process the next time. And I, I'm not sure if Kevin Wong would be the person who won it. That said, he's got this baggage 
from the reasons he was kicked out of the Liberals the last time. Mm. So I doubt Polyev is going to want to inherit that problem. Like, honestly, like it, it's, it's bad to say, but people in politics can be pretty transactional and pretty dismissive. And it's like, you know what, if you've got, if you've got baggage as a candidate, as a, you know, we, we're, we don't want to touch that. And so my guess is Polyev is not gonna, is not gonna come running. Interesting. We've got a couple more minutes with Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration and at Dalhousie University. And I want to ask you about the liberal NDP Pharmacare deal. Although Alberta, it sounds like they're going to be opting out of this. What do you make of this? Is this is this massive news for, for each party? Well, I mean, I don't think it's unexpected. And I think for for the NDP, I think it's really important that they seem to have gotten something tangible out of it right out of the gate. So he's able to say diabetes, medication, contraception. Those are things that he really wanted. And um, he, by he, I mean Jack Singh, the leader. And so rather than say, yeah, we've got some deal kind of hypothetically and that's going to happen sometime in the next year or two, like he's able to actually say, this is what, what's going to come out of this at, at the get-go. And so I think that's important for the Liberals. They get to hold on to this confidence and supply agreement and not have to go to some ad hoc basis of finding support for each vote. I mean, it keeps them a little bit more secure. Now, that said, I doubt the NDP would have ever like totally abandoned them anyway, even if they pulled out of the deal. So, I mean, like, I think the, the ultimate winner is anybody who, who wants this deal, right? And anybody who wants the pharmacare um, package that is going to come out of it. We'll see how, how much longer, though, the deal lasts because it's only like pretty soon it will be March. And March 2024, and we're not supposed to have the next election until October 25. So this isn't enough for them to keep this going, right? Like there needs to be other things, and I'm not sure how they're going to fill that space. Yeah, that is a great point. Dr. Turnbull, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for waking up this morning. You too. Take care. That is Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Always a wealth of information when it comes to the political sphere. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about Canada's airline industry, because after only a couple of years in operation, Lynx Air has gone kaput. Calgary-based No Frills Airline announced last week it has filed for creditor protection and is no longer going to fly after today. So how challenging is the airline industry in this country these days? And does this spell the end of low-cost airfare in Canada? Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marvin, welcome back. How are you? Glad to be here. I'm just great. Thank you. What happened to Lynx Air? Well, generally speaking, it is difficult to get an airline off the ground. Just to give you a sense of it, to get started, they needed more than $100 million of financing. This is not something that an ordinary entrepreneur is going to have lying around in their pocket. Uh, And then when you do start an ultra low cost carrier, it's all about what we call load factor. Uh, You're not making much money per flyer, so you need to have very full planes. And you can imagine the first day that Lynx Air flew, well, who wants to take a chance? How do we know this is going to be there? So usually it takes a while to get consumers confident enough to fly with you. And yet almost from day one, you've got to have really full planes or else you're not making money. And that was the challenge with Lynx Air. Uh, It isn't that consumers who took the chance were upset. Most of them reported that they had a good experience with Lynx Airlines, but it just takes time and they didn't have the financing to go any longer. Less than two years after it appeared, it's gone. 
from a competitive perspective, uh, we have Air Canada, we have WestJet, which recently swallowed Swoop, uh, Porter Airlines, Flair Airlines. Is it a, can the competition be described as healthy in this country? Well, I'll say yes. Now, remember, uh, Lynx is in the ultra low cost carrier, which is great news for consumers. If you want just a cheap flight to get from point A to point B, and, and you don't really want to take a lot of baggage with you, carry on, what have you, then this is a great solution for you. The full cost airlines, and you mentioned the two big guys, that's WestJet and Air Canada, are very healthy and everything's fine on that end. But it was the ultra low cost. Let's give people the discount area. And in the last 20 years, we've seen more than 20 airlines come and go in this sector because it is so hard to keep going. So there still are choices if you're a consumer. Uh, Flair Airlines is still there, although its health is a little weak at this point. It owes money to a few people and is trying to restructure some things. Um, uh, Porter Airlines has done very well, but of course, that's flying out of Toronto Island Airport, which isn't always a great solution for Hamiltonians. They would rather use Hamilton Airport. Uh, But I suspect uh, we're going to see more from a company called Canada Jetlines. It started last year, uh, has a limited number of flights, but now that the uh, Lynx Air has gone, they may very well expand to take over some of those routes. So there is dynamics involved, but as always, the buyer needs to beware. And, and what I mean by that, Rick, is had you bought a ticket with Lynx Airlines and used your credit card, right now you'll be okay. Your credit card company will make you whole. But if you use cash to buy a Lynx Airline ticket, Not only are you not getting your cash back today, you are now becoming a creditor, and that process will take probably more than a year to pan out. You won't get all of your money back. You will get some of your money back, but it will take a long time. So again, if you are flying ultra-low-cost carriers, use your credit card to buy the ticket. Marvin Ryder is our guest, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. With one less airline in the skies, does this mean the price of airfare is going to go up? I'm going to say no, uh, because uh, Lynx Airline was really a very, very small part of the the business um, uh, enterprise here. In other words, Air Canada and WestJet pay attention to each other, but they really were not paying any attention to Lynx Airline. Uh, it does mean that if you are looking for certain flights to certain destinations, you have a little less choice. You may not be able to get that really bargain fare. In the case of Lynx Airline, I think they were flying some people from Hamilton to Calgary for $89. That's a, a, a very, very low fare, a very attractive yeah. fare, but not one that you're likely going to find from other places. Uh, but again, keep looking. Uh, I, I just do worry about chasing the lowest possible fare. At some point, you know, there is a cost to travel. If you're going to go traveling, do you need to save $9, $10, 20 bucks on a ticket, pay a little extra, get a little more. Is there an airline that's going to benefit more with Lynx's demise? Well, most likely Flair. Uh, there was some overlap between Fl- Lynx and Flair Airlines. Both of them were based a little more out of the West. And there was some overlap between them. In fact, there had been a lot of talk in the past month, the month of February, that the two airlines might merge. But I think what happened was Flair took a look at the balance sheet in Lynx airline and the income statement and said, gosh, rather than putting the best of both worlds together, it'd be like putting the worst of both worlds together. So they have steered clear. And I don't think Flair is going to step up to acquire the company. 
but I think they will try to, again, uh, see some of those consumers. So look for them as a place to fill the void. Should be interesting to see. Marvin, thanks for always uh, spending some time at your uh, busy morning with us and enjoy the day. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The 22nd annual Soup Fest is back tomorrow at the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's. All the money raised goes to Living Rock Ministries programs and resources to help youth in need. And as we know, the need is great. I'm happy to say that CHML is once again a proud media sponsor of Soup Fest. Let's dive into it. Karen Craig is the program director at Living Rock Ministries and joins us on GMH. Karen, good morning. How are you? Great. Doing well. We're looking forward to tomorrow. 175 liters of soup was served at last year's event. Are you ready for the next go-round? Oh, yeah. We're excited. Um, And we've got some incredible restaurants. I mean, we know that this has been a difficult time. And Julie Conway, our, our operations director, is the lead of Soup Fest. She's been so supportive of our restaurants, and we're so grateful for them, to them this year, for sure, for stepping up, despite, you know, it's been a difficult time for restaurants since COVID, and to see them just step up anyways for their care for for the youth is just incredible. So, yeah, I'd love to go through the list. If I yeah, <laughs> let's, let's get to it. Who's participating this year? It. Okay. Apothecary Kitchen, Baki Restaurante, Bristow for McMaster Hospitality Services, Born and Raised, Chef Nina's Creative Kitchen, Green Machine, Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's has a soup, uh, Kelsey's Original Roadhouse from Red Hill, uh, Mai Tai, Rock Garden Cafe at Royal Botanical Gardens, RRBG, uh, Stuffed Handcrafted Pierogies, Thirsty Cactus Restaurant, and Zeal Multicultural Cuisine. Well, it sounds like a yeah, pretty good uh, spread is going to be happening tomorrow from 11.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. By the way, tickets online, livingrock.ca. Uh, for $20, you can get four four-ounce bowls of soup, which goes a long way, let me tell you. Absolutely. What? You know, I had a woman say, I didn't realize all this time. I never went, and I didn't realize that you got four bowls of soup with that. And, <laughs> like, it's such a good deal. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, and then, you know, we've got great sponsors, Hooper Laws, and again, as Platinum Sponsor. I mean, these are, you know, we've got funders and sponsors that really, really care about about the youth. So we're really um, excited for them as well. And you're voting. So we need your vote. Yes. Best soup, creative Soup, uh, Tastiest Heart Health, Best Display, and then also Soup Fest Tasting Panels there again, doing a blind taste test. And, the re- you know, the restaurants really appreciate that, too. I mean, they don't know what soups are from what restaurant. They don't know, you know, so they're they're tasting blind and their vote is also super important. So, yeah, no, it's a really, it's really, really great. What's, the, fun, two, what's the fundraising goal uh, this year, Karen? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we just, I think we raised, I would love to see like over 45000 than we did this year. We really have critical services for youth. And so um, it's really important that this is our biggest fundraiser. So this is critical. And um, the other thing is you're going to meet the youth because um, there's a uh, suit for change as well. So uh, Ronnie's, as well as uh, our chef, Jackie, she's doing a soup with the youth. So you're going to meet the youth as well. And you can throw money into that or you can throw a ticket in and that's soup for change. So that's going to be an extra little piece of fundraiser for us as well. So there's lots of opportunity there. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a, a great day and um, we're really, so it's all about the soup this year and that's where it's really important. So. 
22nd Annual Soup Fest back tomorrow at the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's, 11.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tickets online at livingrock.ca. You mentioned some of the programs that Living Rock offers. We know the need is great. Where does the money go? How are youth helped by Soup Fest? Well, it's really going to help. Uh, our work to earn programs are so cr- We're seeing that the youth are coming in, you know, and working is really critical for them. They love to work. Um, we have rock resources, which we give them. You know, they earn bus tickets and they earn um, gift cards for what they do. Super important as well. And so we really need to uh, really boost those programs. We need staff. We realized since we had the... Um, you know, we had uh, a gang prevention strategy. We had some funding uh, through the pandemic from the city graciously stood with us. We had um, also, we're right now in the winter warm-up, so we're open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, Monday to Friday. And that boosted us with about probably six extra staff. And we realized we really need those staff to go deep. We really need to be able to do the case management that's needed to get these youth off the street, get them their ID, get them connected with school and services. And so we really do, we've had sort of a real moment to go, you know what, we really need this boosted staffing on an ongoing basis. So we're just really looking at, um, you know, those supports to, because that's how we do the work that we do. And it's so amazing. These kids are finding community. They're finding work. They're finding connection. It's just, it's amazing to watch their journey and how important this community is to them. So It's great to hear. Karen Craig is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen is the program director at Living Rock Ministries. Soup Fest, the 22nd annual, is on tap tomorrow at the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's. Get your tickets online at livingrock.ca. It runs from 1130 tomorrow morning to 7 p.m. For $20, you can get four four-ounce bowls of soup. Weather-wise, it's it's very un-February-like. Do you think that works to your advantage tomorrow? <laughs> I hope so. At least it's not the big... I mean, last year there was a big storm just before the restaurants were pulling in with their soup. And so I, I hope that this is to the advantage and everyone will just come. You're needed. We need you to come. Um, don't feel like, ah, I'm not going to go this year. I, we really hope everyone will step up and come because it's really important. Living Rock is going to be celebrating its 40th anniversary next year. What does that mean? Oh, I know. I can't believe it. And <laughs> Al and I have been there for, you know, since the beginning. But, uh, you know, it's still, it's an amazing service. And it's going to be, an, we're hoping to have a real exciting party for that, <laughs> for our 40th yeah, that should be a lot of fun. And tomorrow will be a lot of fun as, as well. I'll be there. Hopefully we'll bump into each other. I will certainly be enjoying some soup, and I hope you can uh, enjoy that as well, Karen. Awesome. Oh, absolutely. I think I drink. try to drink it all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Have a great day. Okay, see you. Thanks. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.